Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week we heard from Dame Stephanie Shirley, a pioneer of the computer software industry who founded a highly successful technology company in the early 1960s, staffed almost entirely by women. This week our guest is an expert in international cybercrime. We're largely playing goalie in cybersecurity. There's a lot of pucks coming at the net, and and the Russian hackers are Wayne Gretzky. That was the voice of Kevin Mandia. He founded the cybersecurity firm Mandiant, which came to prominence in 2013 when it released a report directly implicating China in cyber espionage. He sold the company for more than $1 billion and now runs FireEye, the security company that bought it. He spoke to San Francisco correspondent Hannah Kushler about Russian hacking groups and whether we should be worried about cybersecurity under the Trump administration. Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, Thank you for having me. So this election was one where cybersecurity policy wasn't very much in the limelight, but cybersecurity was with hacking and the DNC. What do you think we actually learned about the state of cybersecurity this election? Well, I don't know if I would tie all the activities to just the election. So looking at the observables that we had, maybe I have to give you a little history first. You know, I started responding to breaches as early as 1995. The majority of the breaches I responded to were, in fact, coming out of Russia. And they weren't the cyber criminal element trying to make money. It was a different hacking group trying to steal things from the U.S. military. So I always figured it was intelligence service against intelligence service, or as I called it back then, dot mil against dot mil in cyberspace. And I've always felt there's rules of engagement. So from 1995 to roughly 2014, whenever we responded to what we would attribute to Russian state actors, not Russian criminal actors, and maybe there's an overlap there, but when we saw the purpose behind the breach was state motivated for intelligence gathering or to steal research and development from our military, there's always been rules of engagement. Every time we responded and we thought it was the Russian government, they would go away. They would evaporate. So we didn't get to observe their TTPs or tools, tactics, and procedures every time we responded. And that was just normal for us. There was always great operational security by the Russian intruders. What what does operational security mean? Great counter-forensics. Hard to get attribution. You get attribution by observing the activities over years and years and years and recognizing the patterns in those activities. And those rules of engagement were followed for years. And then all of a sudden, in the fall of 2014, with the observables we had at FireEye, things changed. And looking at those observables, we had about 5,000 companies using our technology. So we had visibility into the networks of about 5,000 entities. We had about 250 what I would call human intelligence gatherers. We bought a company called iSight. They're in 19 countries, speak 32 languages, and they're always online trying to figure out who's doing what and how can we get attribution. And being all around the world, that's pretty helpful. And then we looked at the incidents we were responding to, and we saw an uptick in observing and orienting in intrusions that we equated to what we call APT Group 28 and APT Group 29. And so APT yeah. means advanced, advanced persistent threat. Yeah, we just called it that. Targeted attacks, been around for a while. And we don't have fancy names for them like Fluffy Snuggle Duck, we call it. <laughs> I hear you're kind manager. of against those names. I, I just always felt, I'm not necessarily against it, I get it. But if you're briefing a board member 
under duress and saying, hey, sir, your company was breached. It's a heinous breach and you were breached by fluffy snuggle duck. It doesn't <laughs> add up. So I always felt the integers made more sense and we're just not creative. Maybe we name our malware funny stuff, but the long story made short APT 28 and 29. I think both of them changed their behavior in the fall of 2014. First thing we noticed is their targeting changed. We responded to several universities that were compromised by these groups. It's not uncommon that those groups hacked universities, but it was normally to then hack somewhere else. And all of a sudden we saw universities compromised and the email for what was described to me as anti-Putin type professors was stolen. And that to me was different. Normally, so you mean the, the content of the email, the inbox? But yeah, I didn't firsthand experience it, but the folks that responded, you know, we usually, when we respond to breaches and figure out what happened and what to do about it, we don't look at the information impact. That's up to our customers and the folks who hired us to do that damage assessment. But what, what I learned through the grapevine was these were professors that were anti-Putin or had published things that maybe weren't pro-Putin, and suddenly their emails are taken by what we would attribute as a state-sponsored hacking group. The scope of it changed. And, and oddly enough, that same month, I saw two other changes. I flew into uh, Washington, D.C. We were responding to an organization located in D.C., and our frontline responders told me that they felt they were responding to the Russian government based on the tools being used, the infrastructure being used to launch the attacks, the targeting itself, but they didn't go away every day. And it was weird. So we were showing up every day to figure out, let's scope the breach. We get on site and every day there was 10 new compromised hosts. And the Russian attackers in general, they know when we're there. You know, they can tell when we're responding because machines are getting pulled offline. And the way this organization was remediating, as we call it, they were doing a whack-a-mole. You know, the old game that you play at the arcade. So that was different to me as well. I'd never been in a place where we could just sit there and observe their behaviors. So they changed the rules of engagement that I roughly saw from 1995 to 2014. That's 19 years of observing these folks. So they didn't and do it, an yeah. isolated attack. They weren't sort of scared off by day. knowing that you were yep. there. They were yep. just saying, we're here. We right. know you're here. We're going to yep. try and do as much as we can. Yeah, meaning their counter forensics kind of went down and they didn't care that we knew. All this happened in the same 30 days in September, October of 2014. So I, I liken it to their rules of engagement change. And then in 2014, 2015, our eyesight component, our threat intelligence component started publishing about Russian hackers uh, releasing documents. But I didn't see that firsthand until 2016 in the US election. So, so what changed? The scale and scope of the breaches coming out of Russia has escalated since, in my opinion, September of 2014, based on our observables. Their counter forensics has changed. It's easier for us to observe and orient on them. And that might be by design. They may decide, hey, we'll let them know it's us kind of thing. Yeah. I, I think the Chinese have always done that. Their packets had the Chinese jersey on them. As I said, every time they hacked, they didn't try to obscure it was them. And and so maybe there's a, you know, a tacit dialogue or a tacit uh, signal by these activities uh, being made by another nation. And then all of a sudden we had this, what people call doxing, you know, where the dots you could connect is APT 28 or 29 or both breaking into an entity. Then you can't connect dots. And then all of a sudden you see things like DC leaks or Guccifer 2.0. All the material that yes. you collected through a hack you publish. Yeah, they're becoming public one way or another. And what I don't know and, and don't have the purview to know because we just responded to the intrusions is how did something go from an intrusion to being online 
and, and you can't connect those dots unless you fly around and do a lot of work. But I think most people would assume if the Russian government hacked in and took the documents, they were instrumental in those documents leaking in some capacity. So that's that's what we can't quite connect. So those are the changes that we've observed. So it's interesting when you say the Russian government, because I feel that, you know, you were very clear sure. when, as Mandiant, you did um, the report on the Chinese People's Liberation Army. You said, you know, you had pictures. This is right. the building right. where people are. And, and we got a sense in that case of a kind of, very clear hierarchical operation like part right. of the military is that the same in russia or is it more of a loose connection with cyber criminals and things like that so i think it's harder to get attribution with russia but i also think the relationship between the nations are different i think if you looked at why the chinese were doing cyber espionage campaigns against the united states part of the reason could have been just a simple difference in norms different expectations of privacy different expectations or intellectual property laws and I'm not an expert on Chinese culture, but I've heard from others that those intrusions, maybe the Chinese government didn't think they were as irresponsible as the United States thought they were, or as uh, intolerable as the United States government felt they were. So it was just a disconnect in culture, maybe. With Russia, maybe some of that's true as well, but I think the purposes behind intrusions may be different. There's different risks or repercussions for being vocal, probably about Russian intrusions versus Chinese intrusions. But other groups have been vocal, like CrowdStrike, about Russian intrusions. I think they're largely right and accurate with what they say. But it's a difference. You know, you see two states that have been competitive for a long time. You know, the Cold War was essentially between Russia and the United States. So there's probably some ill will there. But is it a kind of very large government-run operation, or is it sort of co-opting? Because we, we know if we look at the yeah. broader history of Russian cybercrime, actually Russian and Eastern European crime syndicates are what right. we've seen quite a lot, and mm -hmm. they've mainly just wanted to do stuff for financial gain. Right. Well, it's hard to tell. You know, it, it's, I don't think the Russian government wants their activities to be known to the public, or if they do, they pick when and how. And this might be an interesting way to do it, where the attribution isn't 100%. Or even if we had a picture of the building, would we put it in the press? Don't know. There's different decision-making calculus when discussing PLA Unit 61398 or discussing the GRU or the FSB in Russia. Interesting. And, and let's get back to what you were saying about China. You know, maybe misunderstanding that we had a problem in the US with hacking, especially theft of intellectual property, which was one of the, the biggest things. Obviously, this time last year, Obama struck a, a deal where they actually talked out in the open about cybersecurity. Has that had an impact? Is that why we hear much more about Russia at the moment than we do well, about China? You hear more about Russia because it's just fascinating what they're doing. The rules of engagement change. For those of us in the security community, it's an alarming thing when the rules of engagement that have been largely followed for 19 years suddenly break. Makes you not know what's next. Everything becomes a little more uncertain. In regards to China, I think there's lots of factors that dialed back the activity, but we have seen a threat abatement in cyber espionage from China into Western nations, particularly into the United States. And we, we saw lots of factors go into that. One with what the Mandiant report did with PLA Unit 61398. You had an indictment in May of 2014 from the U.S. Yeah, that Department was amazing when they had the right. wanted posters with yeah. the faces of the Chinese yep. soldiers because right. given that no one really believed they were ever yes. actually going to arrest them, it was kind of a statement, right? Well, I think if you have a private company do attribution, 
you can always scoff at it as a sovereign nation, but when the sovereign nation's Department of Justice makes the same accusations, then I think you have to take it more seriously. And I've, I think you look at all the factors. All I can tell you is we, we were pretty locked into the cyber espionage campaigns coming out of China. I started a company in 2004, largely to respond to those breaches and kind of own that moment. And we went from responding to anywhere from 50 to 80 new breaches a month coming out of China, or at least seeing them, whether we responded or not, down to four in August of 2015. So you have a many year run where we could plot how many we're seeing. And in September of 2015 is when the head of state of China came and visited with President Obama. So you think it actually saw a decline before there was we the did. kind of handshake agreement? Yes. Yep. A lot of people thought that the handshake agreement was, you know, not worth the paper it wasn't written on. What, why do you think there had been a change in mindset? Because surely yeah. the motivation for the Chinese, if it was to get intellectual property from U.S. companies, right, that sure. hasn't gone away. True. So could be just a bet. First off, the beauty of my job is I'm a cybersecurity guy, not a mind reader. I don't know <laughs> why the Chinese have chosen their behaviors, but I can tell you it's absolutely changed. I don't believe they're surreptitious and we're just missing them now. I think they're more selective in their targeting and their scope. I think that every modern nation that has an offensive component thinks long and hard before they masquerade as other countries with false flag operations, because I think it's a dangerous thing that most modern nations or responsible nations don't want to deploy that option too often. So I think that the Chinese really did dial it back. And I think they did it based on a myriad of reasons, economic reasons, a better understanding. Maybe we dialed something back. But... Regardless, we're seeing the results of all these factors, whether it be presidential efforts, indictments, public dialogue, uh, it's changed. And so that should be really good news for companies in the West then, because it doesn't appear that the Russians are really going after companies and intellectual property in the same way. I think there's differences in the targeting. Uh, and I think that the one thing about China is that I, I still believe they were always very disciplined and very polite hackers. And you don't want to call them polite necessarily. But in my experiences, when I responded, and I did a lot of forensics personally on these cases, they didn't really cover their tracks. They weren't destroying things. They weren't posting documents they stole. So, I mean, the most famous yeah. destructive attack we saw was obviously North Korea, right? Yeah, I think so. And, and there's stuff going on in the Middle East virtually at any moment where there's things being deleted. But I don't think that was part of the Chinese strategy or doctrine. It was steal documents, steal emails, learn things. But they also were, were the proverbial tank through the cornfield. They didn't really hide well. Some groups hid more than others because some groups targeted more dot military and, and government targets where you have to be, you know, you have to evade more technologies. But the Chinese, in my opinion, the rules of engagement always showed a pretty good amount of discipline and predictability. And now it's just a matter of, so what is fair game for cyber espionage and what isn't? And that's a little unclear to me, and it's probably unclear to everyone. And each nation will have their own definition of, of what's fair game. So which brings us to really, what should the U.S. government do about the Russian threat? Well, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. You know, I, I'll take it from the lens of of the constituents I'm closest to, which is victim companies, victim CEOs, and what they would love to see from their government. And a lot of it is, first off, if government knows of a pending attack, you'd like to know about it too, if you're in the private sector. So information sharing matters. Or if the government's aware of an attack that's occurred, you still want to know about it. Maybe that attack will only work at one company now because we can communicate it fast. So now you don't 
if you're a company and the government knows that someone's in your system, they don't necessarily tell you? I'm, yeah, that would be the case. I would imagine every nation is aware of cyber intrusions in the government sector where they don't alert everyone to it. And it could just be a bandwidth issue. When I was in the military, every major intrusion, and by the way, it's, it's common today as well, a lot of the intrusions anyway go through universities. You know, that's what you compromise as your front node. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. ...to then compromise corporations or government entities. And... The bottom line is you'd see in the military dozens of universities compromised. I don't know how you'd reach out and notify them all, but that was back in the 90s. Today, there's notification processes, but they do take time. Should governments then be spending money to defend universities? That's a great question, by the way. What is the role of government in protecting critical infrastructure in cyberspace? What is the role of government to protect non-critical infrastructure in cyberspace there will always be a gray line there. I think there won't be a bright line in regards to where the handoffs will take place. If you polled 100 CEOs, uh, there would be a wide amount of discord as to what the role of government would be in overt protection. Because, you know, it sounds great on the surface of it, but to truly safeguard a network in a competent, reliable way, you have in plain view unencrypted data. And so you'll have a privacy versus security debate. You have to let the government in your network if you want to get that protection. Not in your network necessarily, but you certainly have to see everything coming to and from your network. And uh, it's real hard to protect yourself. If you can't inspect the traffic, you can't tell if it's good or bad, which means it's real hard to diagnose encrypted traffic is bad. So I think that that debate will go on. I think that, you know, when I look at the CEO's, you probably would divide what you expect from the government if you're part of critical infrastructure versus not, whether you're a regulated industry or not. But I think one of the key things you'd want to have is if you are compromised and your company is compromised by a nation-state actor, a cyber military attack, in general, most CEOs would say, you know, I'd like my government to stand behind me on that. I don't think it's reasonable that a soup company should withstand a military attack in cyberspace. You know, every country has to figure this one out is how good does the security need to be? And so I think attribution does matter. And the exactitude required for attribution is a government thing. So every modern nation needs to figure out how do they pierce anonymity behind attacks? Because that is the only way you can actually have a deterrence. Mm -hmm. If you don't know who's doing it, how do you operate a deterrence? You can't. So first and foremost, I think the private sector, when you really think about this, the government's got the capabilities, all governments do, if they think about it, to figure out who's doing it, to have the international cooperation to pierce anonymity behind breaches, and to be able to operate knowing that if somebody causes harm, there are risks or repercussions to those people, even if the harm's caused in cyberspace. So I think we got to get that right. I don't know if we well, have When you right say risks yet. and repercussions, do you mean there could be 
actual military repercussions? You know, that's the beauty of not, you know, being a diplomat. I don't have to sit here and think about all the possibilities, but I think the best deterrence right now for cyber activities could very well be out of cyberspace. I don't think the Chinese stopped their breaches because we suddenly got better at cybersecurity. I think they got better because we had discussions and they decided they'll dial it back a notch. So we got the intended results, but not from the cyber domain, but by a policy domain and a better understanding. I think ultimately, if you played this out five years, you can have nations that have conditional anonymity on the internet. And if there's bad actors, you can pierce that anonymity and you can make risks or repercussions to those bad actors. And for nations that have just wanton anonymity, you can't figure out who's doing some of the acts. I think over time, you'll see a different internet experience for those folks coming out of those nations. I mean, you just will. So you think it will lead to the balkanization of the internet, maybe U.S. tech companies not offering the same kind of services in those countries? No, it'll be the companies themselves. As we start routing more by an identity than by IP addresses and sources, an anonymous identity is going to have different access to things than a real identity. And this is probably a much longer discussion because the factors that balkanize the internet are far more than whether you choose to have anonymity as part of your cultural privacy as a sovereign nation or you just choose to have conditional anonymity like you largely do in the United States. Uh, everything you do online can be private, but in general, if you do something wrong, we can figure out through legal processes and log files, right, who did it. And that's why you don't see a lot of bad actors and hacking originating in the U.S. Uh, they get caught. But in other nations, as they choose to support a cultural privacy where anonymity is a big part of it. And I can understand that if you have a war-torn nation or rebels and anonymity is a good thing if you're communicating and you're in a, in a nation where there's, there's turmoil, you'll see different experiences in that. But you'll also see balkanization happening by privacy policies. You know, it's hard to have one set policy for privacy from any organization that all the norms worldwide would accept. So I think uh, those challenges will never go away. But the balkanization of the internet can be largely made based on cultural differences, economic choices, and those are probably two of the biggest. Yeah. And so what do you think that the government in the U.S. may be doing already to address the threat from Russia? Well, it's a tough situation. I mean, I, I'll be honest. When you watch this, you know, I remember other breaches I've responded to as it went public. I kept wondering in the back of my mind, well, how do you handle this one? You look at the levers to pull, and I just don't know them all. You know, I do know we're largely playing goalie in cybersecurity. And, you know, to use a hockey analogy, there's a lot of pucks coming at the net, and and the Russian hackers are Wayne Gretzky. I mean, they're good at this. If they choose to break in, they're going to be exceptionally good. And so then you wonder what levers are there to pull to, to dial that back or or do we not dial it back? Maybe there's reasons why we don't. And maybe that by them escalating in cyberspace, maybe we escalate in cyberspace and we reestablish a different norm. Don't know a good answer to that. Maybe the diplomats have one. You think they're hacking back? I don't know if that's the case or not. So what is the intention or goal of hack back? First, how do people define it? But it's been largely my career, at least in the private sector, when I'm helping organizations, the whole concept of hacking back in the private sector. I don't think the private sector has the will or the means to do it. And even the government probably has the same calculus to say, well, what are we hoping to obtain? Attribution? Raise the cost of the intrusion? 
all you may be doing is escalating something where our infrastructure might be the glass house and hacking back in cyberspace is stepping out of the glass house and throwing rocks at a mud hut. You got to think long and hard about the risks or repercussions to those sort of offenses. It was widely believed, though, for yeah. example, that the U.S. government did hack back against North Korea after the Sony Pictures breach. Yeah, and, and so maybe there, if that was in fact the case, I'd read. You know, I have no firsthand knowledge, but I do know that allegedly it was reported North Korea was off the internet for maybe hours, maybe days. That's one form of offensive capability, probably in cyberspace. You could deploy. Probably um, easier a lot, with a country like North Korea, though, yeah. where they don't have a big internet. I think so. But again, you have to think about, so when you when you do something like that, what countries are you using to launch those kind of denial of service attacks? So that's largely what that probably was. Or, um, you know, what infrastructure do you shut down? I think every modern nation, I can tell you this, when I travel the world and I sit down with foreign militaries or foreign diplomats, Every modern nation will have some form of offensive capability in cyberspace, if nothing else, to just understand how to play better defense. You know, when and how they deploy it is probably something most nations are still working out. So if you're a company, at least, mm -hmm. the threat from China in terms of intellectual property theft has gone down. Mm -hmm. What are the threats that you should be most worried about at the moment? Right now, there's always safe harbors. And as long as there's safe harbors in cyberspace, you mean hack with impunity, these attacks will happen. So if you could be compromised, you automatically are. There's a whole bunch of automated programs looking to break in. That doesn't mean you'll have a, a breach of consequence because a human may never get around to taking advantage of the holes that were discovered by an automated means. Right now, I've seen a big jump in what I would call extortion, where the, probably the idea that you have an anonymous currency in Bitcoin combined with credit card data is a long process to monetize. You got to break in, get the primary account number, get expiration, get eight, maybe get CVV. Now there's a chip in these things. You have to find people that are willing to make fraudulent ATM withdrawals, or you have to buy stuff with a stolen credit card, then try to sell the stuff. It's a lot easier just to hack a company, steal certain people's email, and then extort them for Bitcoin. Now you have an anonymous attack. You have information people don't want leaked on the internet. So we're seeing more of those. And, and is and that it, kind of bespoke or in ransomware, the malware that, that sort of locks down and encrypts a computer? So ransomware is different than extortion to me. Well, maybe it's extortion in one form, but ransomware, largely what we've seen there is it's an automated attack and you get paid as a bad guy. It's a volume game. You just want to get your ransomware on as many machines as possible because you're getting Bitcoin or credit card numbers for each infected machine. So you're going for quantity, not targeting. Extortion, in my observations, have been more targeted. And so you try to hit an industry or, or, or people that uh, would pay to have their data not exposed. And I think it's a very dangerous thing. It's, a, it's an unfortunate thing. And, and I think that the international community will largely start having to pay a little more attention to it. What about another risk to executives we've heard a lot about this year is the the kind of money transfer scam where you right. pretend to be someone else and get sure. huge amounts of money transferred like we saw with the SWIFT attack. Is that happening? And do you think there's a, a kind of way to combat that? Well, there's ways to combat it. Everybody is trying to combat it if they have a mature security program. And that attack's been around for over a decade. I mean, if you're trying to get to an account to transfer money, you want a corporate account, not a personal account. And, you know, if you get someone's personal account, maybe you can transfer a couple thousand dollars on a good day. 
So you want company accounts. So CFOs have always been targeted. CEOs have been targeted. Fake invoices have been sent to these folks. People always trying to get the bank routing numbers and, and any way to automate this fund transfer. So those attacks have always occurred. The ones about SWIFT, the good news to that is I think as a cybersecurity expert, I always felt those attacks would have happened a decade ago. So quite frankly, it took longer for people to monetize and figure out SWIFT than I would have guessed. If you had interviewed me in 1998, how long before there's use of SWIFT for the transfer of funds for unlawful means, I would have probably guessed it would have happened by 2002. So we did better Maybe than it I did. expected. Maybe it did. Maybe you're right. I mean, the banks are a confidence game. And uh, if the losses are small, you know, you do risk versus rewards as to how you handle those. But uh, I think every corporate CFO is always targeted. So we, we've started with nation states and then we talked about cyber criminals. One of the things that came up in the US presidential election debates was this idea that Trump put out there that hacks could be being done by 400 pound hackers, yeah. which he basically meant as like amateurs in yeah. their bedroom. Yeah, you know, is so that still a thing? I, I, I guess it is. So I'm the wrong person to ask. My purview and vantage point, you know, we've done about 450 investigations year to date. Nobody's hiring us for the drive-by shooting, as I call it, the automated attack. If you're five minutes behind the problem as an entity, you don't hire FireEye to come in and help. So that's why I'm skewed. I'm looking at the attacks or the investigations we do, and they're generally successful and generally at a scale and scope where a company needs help. So I don't see the whole, hey, they're auctioning off tools. The majority of the groups we respond to are probably state actors. It's custom malware. There aren't guides on how to use this stuff. They're being trained on how to use it, that means. And it's all, you know, it's just custom. It's, it's made to evade most safeguards and to be surreptitious. So I'm not aware of, and nor do we respond to the attractive nuisance type breaches that are out there. But they are still out there. I and, think so. Yeah. It's just too easy. And now... You know, Trump's going to come in. What do we know about his cybersecurity policy and how it could differ from what Obama's done already? I, I know nothing, but I, I just would be surprised if there's any real difference. I think if you're a Democrat or a Republican, you don't want your email to be published online. I think we can all unite behind this and figure out how to keep our information safe, our systems safe, our regulated industries uh, nobody wants to see a utility get shut down by some rogue hacking group. So I, I just don't think there'll be a whole lot of difference. I can't imagine uh, one of the parties having a different mindset about this than the other. And you think we're moving in the right direction for cybersecurity policy in the U.S.? Every year we're more knowledgeable. So I, I have great belief and faith that it'll, you know, yes, we're getting smarter about it. You know, I've read that even during an election year, President Obama had his email taken. You know, so he's aware firsthand of, you know, that worry of, is it going to go live? Is it not going to be published? Who did it? What do I do about it? Uh, when you have that kind of experience at that level, uh, I think that the awareness percolates. And I think our government's very aware, very engaged. But it's a complex enough issue that is broad enough that it's going to, you know, there's probably no perfect answers. Well, so on the good side, we are getting smarter and better, but on the bad side, yeah. we're facing a threat from Russia that we have no idea exactly what it's going to do after breaking right. the pattern. At the end of the day today, maybe it's Russia, but what I learned, years of responding to breaches, whether you want to or not, you start recognizing 
the link or connection between geopolitical conditions and the breaches you're responding to. And that's just here to stay. Cyber will always be a means by nations. It probably is a silent signal of what their intentions are. Well, thank you very much for oh, joining us. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week when you can hear from Mike Cagney, founder and chief executive of SoFi, an online lender that has its sights set on disrupting traditional banking. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Keane.